Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I'm going to look at a very familiar passage. And we're going to begin with this verse today. Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to look at verse 1. I'm going to read the ESV, whatever version of the Bible you have, just follow along. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Amen. I'm going to read the NIV. It's the one that a lot of people grew up with, who grew up in church. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, Holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. The word body here is the Greek word soma, which means the human body, the physical human body. Now, many people interpret this passage as, in view of God's mercy, offer your lives, offer your hearts to God as living sacrifices, as holy and pleasing. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a bad interpretation. It's a popular one. But it should never overshadow the plain reading of this text. The Apostle Paul does not use Greek words that can be translated as offer your hearts or offer your lives. In fact, no sound translation of the English, no, no English, no sound English translation of the Bible will ever translate this word. As heart or lives. It's always going to say offer your bodies. That's because Apostle Paul uses the Greek word soma. Which means physical body. So he's saying in view of God's mercy. Offer your physical body as a living sacrifice. Some scholars suggest that this emphasis was absolutely necessary. Because of the influence of Greek philosophy. That taught the depreciation of the body in favor of the spirit. Remember I kind of went over some Western philosophy a couple weeks ago or last week. And talking about how Western philosophy believes that the body is inherently evil. Material, matter, physical world is evil. The spirit realm is good. And so some scholars say that this emphasis of Paul was attacking that Western philosophy mindset. We got to offer our physical body. And Paul makes it clear that the resurrection of Christ was in a physical body. Amen? That is the center, the central message of Christianity. Is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was in a physical body. (laughs) And through Christ's death, our physical body has now become the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not about just your hearts like this, you know, intangible heart, you know, is the temple. Your physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We used to have physical temples in the Old Testament. They're gone now because there is something else that is physical that has replaced it. And the Bible argues it is your body. (laughs) Your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul also spoke about in 1 Corinthians 7 how we are being made holy both in body and in spirit. Apostle Paul always valued our physical body because it is central to Christianity. That our resurrection, our future resurrection, will also be one of our physical body. As Christ was resurrected in a physical body, we also will share in that same physical body resurrection one day. Amen? That is the hope. That is the Christian hope. Do not think that when Jesus returns or when you die and go to heaven, you're just going to be a spirit, disembodied spirit floating around on clouds. That is the influence of Western philosophy onto Christianity, not what the Bible teaches. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, one of the most fascinating things here is that the Apostle Paul teaches that when you submit your physical body to God in a way that is holy and pleasing to him, This is your spiritual act of worship. 
Did you just catch that? How you stored your physical body is your spiritual act of worship. Making sure that you get plenty of sleep. How many of y'all got good sleep this week? Hallelujah. (laughs) After my message last week, I hope you felt a new momentum, a new grace to take authority over your your evenings and get some good sleep. Making sure you get plenty of sleep, eating right, exercising, abstaining from sexual immorality with your physical body. This is your spiritual act of worship. But you know, a lot of people, they dichotomize between this physical and the spiritual. When I read my Bible and pray, that's spiritual. When I go to church, that's spiritual. But how I eat, what I do with my eyes, how much TV I watch, what I say with my tongue, whether I help with the dishes, whether I exercise or not, that's not spiritual, that's just physical. And the Apostle Paul says, wrong. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't just offer your hearts to God. Offer your physical bodies as well. To steward our physical body in a way that is holy and pleasing to God, this is our spiritual act of worship. Just as much as having quiet time is. Going to sleep on time is your spiritual act of worship. Now, last week I started the... uh, my sermon series on wisdom with the body. And I began on wisdom with sleep. Next week, I'm going to cover wisdom with food and fitness. Now, that's going to be a difficult message. I need your prayers on that one. I'm going I'm to go for that one next week. And today, I'm going to cover wisdom with sex. It's a popular... Uh, R&B hip-hop song in the 90s. I used to go, let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Talk about all the good things. Some of the younger folks, you may not be aware of that song. All right. It wasn't in exactly the spirit of Christ that they were singing that song. But we need a little bit more talk about sex in the church. Now, who's the youngest person in this room today? All right, I think Josh is 18, right? You're 18, 19? Okay, anyone younger than 18 in the room? Okay, so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go rated R on this message. <laughs> if there was like a, a 13-year-old, I was going to tone it down. But we know, let's talk about sex. X-E-X. Sex. Now, we got to go all the way back to Genesis if you want to talk about sex. Because you got to know the origins of it. Now, Genesis chapter 2 tells us that God created man and woman. And he created our physical body. And since God created our body, it is also worth mentioning that inherently he created sex. Because sex is built into our body. Sex is part of our physical anatomy. God gave us erogenous zones. All right, I said it, okay? If you don't know what erogenous zones are, these are areas of our body. Some of you don't even, you're not even aware you have them. These are areas of your body where when they are stimulated, it gives us pleasure. (laughs) Now, let's talk about sex today. All right, let's talk about sex. God created that. God created that. Just like the, some of you are ticklish, all right? Other areas, if someone you like and you're attracted to touches you there, it's going to cause you pleasure. That's called your erogenous zones. God also created the female organ to conveniently co- accommodate the man's. Okay? Just think about that for a second. It wasn't an accident. Now, God also, he created the sexual climax. Now, for some of you who are a little bit more naive in this area, you may not know what that is. Okay? But for some people who've experienced it, I mean, they almost idolize it. Like for some, like, celebrities, they, like, 
They do anything. They pay anything, be with anybody to get that sexual high. But let me tell you something. God created that. You know, when God saw Adam and Eve making love for the first time, he did not look down and go, oh, that's fascinating. I had no idea that was going to happen. Like, God did not ever say that. It was his idea. He created it. He's like, oh, things are working real good down there. Oh, wow. Oh, Adam. Whoa, what are you doing? Oh, uh, actually, uh, I created that. Okay. Keep going. Carry on. Sex is not some evolutionary accident, and it is not just a method of procreation. For animals, it may give them some pleasure, and it helps them to procreate. But for humans, sex is so much more meaningful, because God designed it this way. Sex is more than just a way to have babies. God's design for sex is that through it, two people can know each other deeply And experience emotional, physical, spiritual oneness in a permanent covenant of marriage. This is God's design. And this design is found in Genesis chapter 2. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 2 all the way in the beginning of the Bible. And look at verse 24 and 25. Genesis chapter 2 verses 24 through 25. I'm going to read it in the ESV. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both but naked, and they were not ashamed. This verse here, for a lot of people, they, they breeze right through it. But if you look at this verse, it's full of meaning. This verse talks about marriage and sex. God's design for marriage is revealed here. Verse 24. God's design for marriage is that a man or a woman leave his mother and father. The Bible does not say a man shall stay with his parents, hold fast to his wife, and the four will become one flesh. Oh, praise the Lord, that's not there. (laughs) Think about that. Think about what the Bible does not say. There's a lot of implications there. And what it does say is reflecting God's heart and design for sex and marriage. It says here, in order to get married, you must leave your parents behind. Don't feel sorry for them. Don't feel bad for them. You got to leave them behind emotionally, socially, financially in order for you to go and start your own family. You must learn to become a good husband and a good father yourself. You cannot depend on your father to take care of your children and pay your bills. You got to take care of your own children and pay your own bills. That's what the Bible is saying here. (laughs) Shall leave a man shall leave his mother and father. So much wisdom in this. Now, of course, we don't cut ourselves off from our parents, right? But we got to discern what is a healthy way to honor them and continue to have them involved in our lives while being independent of them. Because the Bible makes it clear, you got to leave them. Both the husband and wife, you got to leave your parents behind. You must leave. Second thing we see here is that God's design for marriage is not only that you leave, but that you cleave, that you hold fast to your spouse. And this is talking about sex. God's design for marriage is that you consummate marriage through sex. So this is why you should have sex on your wedding night. And this is why during your wedding day, you should get a wedding planner or a friend or might of honor to do most of the work for you. Because you don't want to go on your wedding night and be all tired. <laughs> and believe me, for the men, no matter how tired they are, they're going to still want to get it on. <laughs> so it's really more of a wisdom for the women. You got to take it easy on your wedding day. Because it is the best thing is to consummate it on your wedding night. Right? 
But that's God's design, is that when you get married, that you do it, that you get it on. And that you no longer see yourselves as two independent persons living together, but as two people giving up their independence to become one in every way. God wants the married couple to enjoy the joys and challenges of becoming one emotionally, financially, socially, physically, financially, did I say financially? (laughs) Uh, Spiritually. (laughs) Financially is the tough one, by, by the way. The two would become one flesh. Now, Jesus quotes this verse in case you're wondering, ah, this doesn't say marriage here. How can you interpret it that way? Well, Jesus interpreted it that way. Go to Mark chapter, if you go to Mark, don't turn there. Mark chapter 10, Jesus interpreted it to be talking about the institution of marriage. And he added, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Warning against divorce. Marriage is to be a permanent covenant. It was never in God's design, divorce. That was a provision made because of the hardness of our hearts, Jesus said. God hates divorce. Because he loves his original design for marriage. So whatever marriage you're in, no matter how hard or difficult it is, you got to fight for your marriage. As much as you are able, you got to fight to nurture some better intimacy, die to yourself, be selfless, serve your wife. You got to fight for that marriage. I believe God will help you to hold on to that marriage. Now, there's sometimes we got to let people go. And the Bible talks about that too, but that's not what this message is about. And marriage provides the covenant where this complete oneness can occur safely. According to scripture, proceeding into sexual oneness without marriage is a profoundly stupid thing to do. Not my words, the Bible's. Dr. Ronecker, in his book, Choosing God's Best, writes that any emotional, spiritual, or physical oneness that you enjoy outside of marriage is at best a form of counterfeit oneness. You might be like, oh, I got the real thing. My girlfriend and I, we cohabitating. We got, the, we got just as good as y'all married people do. We got it even better. And Dr. Ronecker says, all right, that's what you think. But just give it a little time. With any counterfeit good that you buy, just give it a little time. And you'll find out it's fake. When a man says, I love you, baby, when are we going to express that love appropriately? You know? <clears throat> but if the man has not committed to you emotionally, financially, spiritually, This man is just manipulating you to get you into bed. His words are empty and full of deceit. He wants to enjoy the pleasures of marriage without the responsibilities of it. You don't want to get into a man. You don't want to get into bed with a boy like that. You want to get into bed with a man. And a real man, he's going to give you the whole thing. Not just an evening or two or 20. (laughs) He's going to give you his whole life. He's going to give you his whole lifetime. And that is the reflection of Christ's love for the church. We taint the original image we're actually trying to reflect. Whenever we as Christians, we get involved with relationships that are sexual without that covenant of marriage. Imagine if Jesus tried to be our savior without dying on the cross. Imagine if he tried to get into covenant with us without showing us any selfless love. Would you buy it? I mean, Jesus, I ain't calling you Lord and Savior. Come on, Jesus, where are you? show me, show me what, what you're gonna pay. Show me what, show me that you're gonna be my Savior and Lord. And Jesus is like, Nah, I'm, I'm not doing nothing. All right, no, let's just hug. <laughs> I just want quiet time with you. Come on, let's just have quiet time. But what about my sins, Jesus? Do something about my sins. Look, man, that's on you, all right? <laughs> you committed those sins. Can you, can you go take care of that on your own? Go see a psychologist or something? I just, I just want to snuggle. <laughs> what kind of... No covenant, no price paid for that covenant? There's always a price paid to enter the marriage covenant. That's why engagement rings, although it's, you know, driven by market, 
capitalism, you know, it's still a powerful symbol that I think holds a lot of meaning. When a man pe- pays two to three months paycheck to get you that rock, that is a symbol. I'm all in. That cost me something. Let me tell you something. I'm all in. I've never done this for anybody in my life. Not even my mama. I've never gotten her a gift this expensive. Look, girl, I'm in with you. And it's, it's a good symbol. You know, instead of just being like, oh, yeah, we're going to get married. I promise. Pinky swear. It's like, what? Uh, you put a ring on it. And because God designed sex, we must stop viewing sex as dirty. Sex is not dirty. Sex is not shameful. Sexual immorality is dirty and shameful. But sex itself is not dirty. Now, your parents may have implied that sex is dirty. So they can get you to stay away from it as long as possible. Okay, but that is actually not true. Sex is beautiful. Sex is a beautiful thing. And you know what filmmakers try to do sometimes? Filmmakers that, I'm not talking about pornography. For filmmakers that try to like really capture the intimacy, the love, the connection between two people. And they they like film certain sex scenes, you know? Like if you really see a filmmaker do it in a classy way, it's actually quite artistic and beautiful. And you might be like, oh, I shouldn't be looking at that. Oh, oh, honey, close your eyes. (laughs) No, no, you don't have to be all like like a 12-year-old like that. If you see it really from God's perspective, and if hopefully in the film, in the plot line, the two people are married, even better, right? You celebrate that. Well, that is a, this is beautiful. This is God's creation. God glories when two married people have sex. It's a beautiful thing in his eyes. God created it. He made it beautiful. He calls it good. We need to stop calling it dirty. Song of Songs, chapter 4. Let me read you a little excerpt. To show you that the Bible celebrates sex. It's not just for procreation. By by the way, St. Augustine, I did a research paper on his views of sex and marriage, was very influenced by Neoplatonism rather than scripture. And so he tended to teach later on in his life that sex, and he he was a sexaholic at one point. He writes about it in all his books, you know. He had an illegitimate child. I mean, that, that boy, he sexed it up. And then later on, he's like, hey, nobody, nobody should have sex unless it's for procreation. That's exactly what he taught toward the end of his life. But let me tell you something. That's, and, and the Roman Catholic Church still follows his teachings. That's why Catholic priests are for, they're, uh, forbidden to have sex. They're, they're supposed to live a celibate life. They're married to Jesus, right? But that's more Augustine teaching than biblical teaching. And Augustine's teaching was influenced by Neoplatonism rather than scripture. But here's what scripture shows. Song of Psalms, Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 11. Lover, your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb. You ever hear R&B singers saying, give me some sugar, baby? All right. That's from the Bible. <laughs> that metaphor, ain't no R&B singer came up with that metaphor. It's from the Bible. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Beloved, blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Now, this is the uh, woman talking to the, the, the man, I think, right? Beloved says, blow on my garden that, is, that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste his choice fruits. What are they, have like an apple garden in their yard? What are they talking about? Okay, I'm going to leave that to your imagination, what they're they talking about. Okay? Uh, but there's a celebration of sex as more than just an act of procreation. It is God's beautiful design. And here the two lovers, the husband and wife, are delighting in that design. Uh, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18. May your fountain be blessed. He's talking to a man. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. Uh Uh-oh. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Wow. (laughs) You didn't know the Bible talked like that. 
this is the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. And we, today we're talking about wisdom with sex. And this wisdom says, may your wife's breasts satisfy you always. What does that tell you? That tells you that the woman's, I'm going to use a cute term, the woman's boobs, women are not cows. Their boobs are created for more than just feeding their baby. And you might be like, oh, wow, oh, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Yes, it's in the Bible. And Augustine, I don't know why he missed these verses. But it's very clear that the Bible does not regard sex as dirty. Sex is a beautiful thing. Sex is a beautiful gift. God didn't have to give it to us. He could have made sex like all the other animals. You ever see other animals kind of doing it? They just, they just hump everything. You know, they don't look for a commitment. They don't look for emotional oneness. They don't ask for your finances up front or nothing like that. You know, they just sniff each other and, and they're gone. I mean, but God gave sex to us as a gift. Not only for our procreation, but for our enjoyment. That we may glorify God in his original design. So God created sex. Sex is beautiful. Everybody say sex is beautiful. Sex is a gift. But when sex is sought without, when it is sought out without honoring God's design, sex becomes destructive. And in some cases, an abomination to God. Thus, in the law, God explicitly lays out parameters. And he points out all of the obvious forms of relationship where sex is forbidden. Now, you might think, like, God, come on. Why are you pointing out the obvious? But as we unpack this passage, you will see why. Look, turn to Leviticus chapter 18. I want everybody to turn to Leviticus chapter 18. This is the third important passage we're looking at today. And then we have one more important passage after this. Leviticus chapter 18, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. No, Genesis, <laughs> Exodus, Leviticus. Sorry. You think you're better than me now? Huh? <laughs> Only like 12 of y'all got that anyway. So, so. Shut up and let's move on. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18. All right. It outlines some of these parameters where sex is forbidden. Now, although this passage may use gender-specific language to men, these commands apply to both genders. Verse 6 says, do not have sex with close relatives. Who constitutes close relatives? Well, here we go. Verse 8 through 11. Your mother. If your father gets remarried, even though that person is not your mother, his new wife. Do not have sex with her. Your sibling, your step-sibling, your, and verse 11, your half-sibling, your grandkids. Verses 12 to 14, continuing on. No sex with your paternal or maternal aunt or uncle. And no sex with your uncle's wife, even though there's no bloodline. Now, in Korean, that covers your komo, komobu, imo, imobu, kunapa, kunama, changanapa, chagrama. All right, that includes everybody. Not just your bloodline, uncle and aunt, but the ones they are married to. No sex with them. Verse 15 to 16. No sex with your daughter-in-law or your sister-in-law, even though there's no bloodline there. Verse 17. No sex with both a woman and her daughter. No, um, you know, yeah, that's disgusting, right? No sex with both a woman and her daughter or her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. The Bible says this kind of behavior is wicked. Look at verse 20. Do not have sex with your neighbor's wife. Don't do it. Verse 22. If you are a man, do not have sex with another man. Verse 23. Do not have sex with an animal. You'd be like, man, that's disgusting, Lord. Why you got to point all that stuff out? That's sick. 
Why is this necessary? Now, if you've ever been in ministry and you've ministered long enough to a diverse group of people, you will soon find out how many people have sex with a close relative. Whether it's oral sex or full sex or sexual um, uh, fondling or whatever forms of sex. You'll be amazed how many people sexually have sex with a close relative or an in-law or something like this. Or they sexually abuse their own children, their nephews, nieces. Or, or it's just like an older sibling will sexually abuse a younger sibling. And you may be in here that that may actually be your personal story. And I'm here to say that God thinks that's an abomination. That should have never happened to you. And if you were the perpetrator, you knew you should have not done that. These things are abomination to God. Sex is a beautiful thing. Don't get me wrong. Sex is not dirty. But when sex goes outside of God's original design, it becomes very destructive. Look at uh, verse 24 to 30. I'm going to read the rest of this chapter. I'm going to read every single word here and listen carefully. I'm going to start from verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns, who lives among you. For the people of the land who were before you, they did all of these abominations. They slept with their children. They slept with their siblings. They slept with their parents. So that the land became unclean. Verse 28. Lest the land vomit you out and make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. Verse 30. So keep my charge. Never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you. And never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. At the end, God just says one simple reason why you should not practice this kind of sexual immorality. One reason why. Because I am your God. And I'm a holy God. And you are to be my holy people. Now, when you read these prohibitions, you might, I don't know what goes through your mind, but I want you to see the heart, the spirit behind why God gives these commands. Why would God give these sexual prohibitions? What, to limit your fun? To hold back amazing sexual experiences from you? If you really look at it, the spirit of these commands is very simple. It's love. The reason why all these sexual prohibitions are important is because of love. For the sake of love, God says, do not do these things. You know, when your dad, for example, let's say he gets remarried and he marries like some really like attractive younger wife and you're like 28 years old now. And this wife is living at your home and you see your dad and this new wife, they're having some trouble. And she's only like a few years older than you or about the same age as you. Do not have sex with her. Because if you do, that is so unloving to your dad. Here's your dad trying to get a new beginning and you're ruining his marriage. You think that's loving? Well, she's so attractive. She's nearly my age. I couldn't help myself. That's just selfish. It's absolutely selfish. If you have sex with any close relative, that's not love. I don't care how tempted you were, how tired you were, how sexy she looked, how weak you felt, how much you have in common. Such sex is an abomination to God because its implications Destroy family relationships. 
It also destroys your relationship with your neighbor. With your brother or sister that you worship with each week. With the coworker that you sit across from at your desk. When you have these kinds of sexual relations, it destroys love. It destroys relationship. No guy is ever going to say, oh, dad, what, you, you have sex with my wife. I am so glad. This is going to result in greater intimacy for our whole family. What kind of, what, no one will ever say that. Like, dad, what is this you've done? How could you? Just no one has to teach you that. No, you don't even have to read a Bible verse. It's just built into us. Close relatives have sex with you. Unless like you're really got a lot of deception. Twisted and weird. Strange new age thinking. And it's just all like messed up up there. Your natural reaction is going to be. You're going to be appalled. That a close family member has sex with your wife. When these relational boundaries are violated. It destroys the environment of safety and support. God intends for there to be. In every family. Think about that. If you grew up in a home and and your dad sexually abused your sister, safety just went out the window. If dad's capable of that, what else is he? He's not only sexually abusing my my sibling, sexually abusing my cousin. Dad, what is wrong? And you will feel no safety if you were to find that out at an early age. Or you find that out at a later age, you will feel all kinds of disillusionment. Against the world, against your dad, against God. Because that's an abomination. You know, sex is very powerful. But when this power is recklessly handled, it results in great destruction. Sex is like electricity. It's awesome when it's channeled properly. Get lights and video cameras and keyboards, which don't work when you need it to. (laughs) But when electricity is handled recklessly or abused, it results in great destruction. A person that says, I feel the Bible's sexual prohibitions are very limiting and oppressive. I believe in sexual freedom. That's like the same thing as saying, I feel that electricity should be allowed to be handled by anybody, everybody, anywhere. Right? However they see fit, nobody's going to agree with you. Why? Because if you live your life with that principle, you're going to see the negative consequences of mishandling electricity real quick. Well, just as we know the negative destructions of violating and mishandling electricity or gravity or any invisible force we don't see but we believe in and we see the effects of, as Christians, we need to do the same thing for sex. Although you can't see the effects, the negative effects of sex right away. Oh, it will get you. There are consequences. Because sex is a powerful thing. So God designed sex. He sets the parameters for its enjoyment. And we got to submit to this design if we want to find the most pleasurable, enjoyable, and edifying experience of sex. And when we step out of these parameters, we sin. And the Bible says, wherever you sin, sin will lead to destruction and death. The book of Romans says, the wages of sin is death. So the Bible warns in the book of Proverbs. It actually spends three chapters warning young men and women against the consequences of adultery. So I'll read a few verses here. Proverbs 5, 5. Her feet, talking about the adulteress, her feet go down to death, not to some bedroom. You follow her to that bedroom, it's the same thing as following her to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. It's Proverbs 5.5. Proverbs 6.32. A man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot. In other words, a beatdown is coming. His shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury. And he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. 
You hear about in the American news all the time, the American media, how famous football player, his jealousy was aroused when his wife started supposedly cheating on him across, behind his back. And he showed no mercy when he took out his fury and he killed both of them, supposedly. Although he was proven innocent in a court of criminal law, but was proved guilty in a court of civil law. And if y'all don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it, okay? <laughs> White Bronco truck, all right, that's all you need to know. Glove didn't fit, okay? That's all y'all need to know, okay? But man, when a husband's fury gets aroused, because he knows the wife is cheating. Oh, there is no way, no amount of money will appease his wrath. Proverbs 7.24, now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. She has slain a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Whoa, Bible, why so morbid? I thought we were just talking about sexual immorality. And the Bible says, check it out. You keep going that way and you don't repent. It will lead to death and destruction. I assure you. Is what wisdom is saying in Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7. You might be saying to yourself, well, I'm single. I'm not married yet. So I guess those warnings don't apply to me. Remember, Jesus added in the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her in her heart has already committed adultery in his heart. Meaning that God is not the God who only sees the sin of our hands and our physical body, but he also sees the sins of our thought life. And he's saying adultery doesn't start spontaneously. It starts with a seed of a thought. Oh, she's kind of cute. Oh, look at that dress she's wearing. And you start fantasizing about her. You're already committing adultery with her in your heart. God says that, that requires repentance. That's sin. Jesus is saying, you've got to repent of that now. Or else you will be led into the highway of death. It will lead to the destruction of your family. Your kids will hate you. Your wife may leave you. Your church may excommunicate you. And believe me, there are churches that do excommunicate, says the Lord, onto the earth to a little church in Korea that has done so before. You will lead to destruction. You know, a lot of pastors, I don't know why, they don't, they don't study these warnings here. And they take it too lightly. And the more fame they get, the more money they get, they get a little loose with this area. And they sin. And then they have all kinds of spiritual answers to why they sinned. And justify why they got into it or how they got into it. I, I remember I remember in college, there was a fellow uh, student leader for Campus Crusade for Christ. His father was a pastor. And I, and I thought, this, this, is a, this is a godly family. It's, I met the father. He's a real joyful man. Shook my hand. You know, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You know, using all the spiritual language. I was like, wow, this is a, this is a man of God. Well, uh, within a year, I found out the brother sharing with me, my dad left my why left my mom <laughs> my dad left my mom and ran off with another woman and i was like what he's a pastor how could he do that and my dad said god told him to do that god revealed through dreams and prophetic words that he was with the wrong woman and this new woman that god brought in that's the woman that he's supposed to wed so in order to make it right he had to leave the wife and go run off with the woman and I was like, how does that make you feel? He said, I can't believe it. I looked up to my dad all my life. I can't believe he'd done something like this. How did he get here? Well, I'll tell you something. He didn't get there overnight. Those were seeds of thoughts that he never repented of. Oh, she's cute. She's attractive. Oh, you know, I just feel like God's telling me I need to go pray for her, pray with her. Oh, she's like, you know, I need to be at early morning prayer. Oh, she's at Friday fire. I need to be at Friday fire. Oh, she's going on a mission. We're going to be on the same team. You know, like whatever thoughts he kept following and needing and feeding and finally gave birth to this sin. 
all kinds of death and destruction. You might be saying, these warnings don't apply to me. Well, Jesus said it does. If you even commit, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you're already committing adultery. And these warnings, if you really study Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, it's a warning to both married people and single people. It talks about the prostitute. Don't follow the way of the prostitute. Now, I want to share a little wisdom on sex that a lot of, I think, young people... They overlook or they don't really think about. I want to tell you today, for those who have a sexual history in here, you've never been married or you have been married but divorced or whatever, you know, but you have a sexual history, a sexual immoral history. I want to warn you today. Be discerning. Do not mistaken the thrill of sin for sexual pleasure. Let me expand on this. What most people experience during an adulterous affair, premarital fornication, which is just an old word for premarital sex. When you have these sexual immoral, sexually immoral encounters, what you're experiencing is not an amazing sexual experience. What you're experiencing is the thrill of sin. Or the Bible calls the fleeting pleasures of sin. The reason why that sexual encounter feels so amazing and so good. Is because the pleasure of sin is mixed in with it. People who have these experiences, they're deceived into thinking. That this other person with whom they are having an adulterous affair. It's offering them better sex than the sex that they, that person has with his wife. Because when, the, when he's with his wife, it's like, honey, let's make love. And it's like, all right. Can we do it tomorrow? Oh, come on, honey. It's been a long time. All right, fine. And that's, and he's just like, man, that's my sex life with my wife. But with this mistress, we just hit the hotel room and we're just ripping each other's clothes off. This is awesome. Why is my wife not offering me this sex? And so the man is deceived into thinking there's better sex with this other woman. Maybe I need to leave my wife because I've fallen out of love with her. Because that kind of sex, we had it in the beginning, but we don't have it no more. I got it with this other person. So I must go to the person with whom I'm having these sexual highs because it must be indicative that we're in love. But if a man was ever to leave his wife and marry this mistress, the man will soon find out that the sexual high he left his wife for quickly dissolves. Because what he was delighting in was not sex itself, but he was delighting in the fleeting pleasures of sin. And once he marries his mistress, that element is now gone. And he's going to have to have sex like most married couple again. And he's going to have to be selfless. He's going to have to be holistic. He's going to have to you know, serve and love and, and fill her love tank so that she wants to have great sex. You know? And if he tries to uh, continue to look for this um, experience, he's probably going to leave his mistress and go after some other woman because he finds that same thrill elsewhere in another adulterous affair and there's this like famous blues song the thrill is gone you know the thrill is gone the thrill is gone away <clears throat> anyway i'm not singing it right but uh <laughs> that's what a lot of uh sexually active people feel you know when the thrill is gone they just move on to another partner or if they're in a marriage they have this thrill with this other adulterous person, adulterous affair. They, go, they leave their wife to, to go for this adulterous affair. And then the thrill is gone. And then they go looking for another adulterous affair. Let me spit the truth. Young men and women, you got to wake up. Wake up. That sexual high is not owing to an amazing sexual partner you found. That high is the thrill of sin. Do not be deceived. And though it may feel oh so good right now, the Bible says that the payoff is never worth the pleasure. 
Remember, the wages of sin is death and destruction. Jesus said, what's good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You're going to have all the most amazing sexual experiences in the world, but you are going to lose your soul if you keep at it like that. You keep violating the design of God. The book of Proverbs continually warns us three chapters against adultery. So if you're in here and you, uh, and you know, there's a, okay, no, 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 don't, don't preach that. All right, just keep going. Okay. If you're in here and you are, you've never had a sexual experience, you're a virgin. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Okay. If you're a virgin, celebrate that. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't let movies like 40 year old virgin scare you. Okay. <laughs> You'd be a virgin as long as God has ordained you, all right? If you're a virgin, let me, let me, let me tell you a little wisdom. Don't get involved in premarital sex. You think it'll have no uh, effects on your future marriage? Let me tell you something. It does. For people who have a lot of sexual encounters before they get married, they think, oh, I'm going to be good. I'm forgiven. I got a new start. I'm, I'm going to be all good once I get married. They're completely deceiving themselves. Remember, the Bible talks about, and I'm going to read that real soon, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that when you unite with another person, the two becomes what? One. And so even if you don't like, even if you don't want to give your heart away, every time you have sex, you're, you're experiencing a oneness with someone new. And when you finally land at your marriage and you want the real oneness, the, all the counterfeit oneness is going to deceive and haunt you and it's going to be an uphill climb for you to have a good, healthy, genuine oneness with your wife or your husband. And so what happens is if you have a lot of these sexual encounters before you get married, when you actually do get married and you have this beautiful, amazing love with your spouse as God intended. And as you're making love, you start thinking about all the previous sexual encounters you had. And you're like, man, I've had better sex than this. Oh, man, I, I'm not getting that feeling, that rush that I used to get when I used to hook up with people. Oh, man, there's something missing. God, you, you, you deceive me. You put me with somebody that's not going to be able to give me that sexual fulfillment. And you get all caught up in that kind of deception. When all along, the provision God's given you in your marriage is an amazing and beautiful gift. There's no lack. It's original. That's the original design of God. There's amazing sex to be had. It just, it just, you just need to learn how to get there. It doesn't happen on the, on the wedding night. How many of y'all married couples? Y'all know what I'm talking about. It does not happen on the wedding night. Good. <laughs> We're going to talk later, honey. <clears throat> Uh, anyway, like I was saying, good sex, it takes time to build up to it. You got to learn, you know, some women like certain things, other women don't like those things. And so with your spouse, you got to learn what she likes and dislikes. And then you got to teach her what she likes and dislikes, what do you like and dislike. And it's a maturing process. So good sex doesn't take place overnight. It just happens over time as you're committed to one another in oneness in every area. Financially, when you get your financial oneness, more and more that process goes deeper and deeper. You're, you're realizing, man, we're really financially one. When you have sex, then it's going to be better than when your finances were all separate. And when you're emotionally connecting and you're like heart to heart and you feel so thankful for your spouse and she feels thankful for you and you have sex, it's going to be more amazing than just on your wedding night. You know, that good sex, it takes time. That's, the, that's God's original design. But you're constantly thinking of, oh, that, that sexual encounter I had up, up, up at the club. I made love in the club. It was amazing. It's like, yeah, first of all, that's sick. What kind of, you know, if you really think about the lyrics of that song, it is really sickening. It is very unhygienic. And if you, 
you got to be really drunk to enjoy sex in the club, okay? Because if you're really sober, all right, it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> Depending on the upholstery that you're working with, I mean, it's, it's going it's to be... Look, that, anyway, how did I get into that? <laughs> for those who have never had sex, stay, stay virgin. Now, for those who have a sexual history, let me, let me say something. Be vigilant in applying the gospel to your mind. And God will make you as if you've never had sex. Don't feel like, oh, it's too late. Let me just keep living my life. Oh, it's too late. Nobody wants me. Oh, I'm dirty. Oh, that's, that's, that's satanic deception. The gospel tells you the truth. God makes you a new creation. He takes your sins that are like scarlet. He gives you, he makes you as white as snow. So let the gospel renew your mind. And it will be as if you've never had a sexual history. If you go into marriage renewed from your old past sexual history, you will have the most amazing love in your marriage. Don't let Satan rob you from that. Because if he robs you from that, I'm telling you right now, the vitality of your marriage will suffer. You will not be able to run the whole race and finish out marriage. You'll be more likely to be tempted to an adulterous affair if you're not having good, God-glorifying sex. You know, tonight we're having married couples community group, right? This is for our church leaders. We have a married couples community group. We meet once every two months. And one of the homeworks that we assign is all couples are required to have more sex than the average Korean couple in Korea. So how, what's the average frequency of the Korean couples in Korea? All right, do you guys know what the average is? Okay, it's four to five. Okay, four to five. So our married couples are required to beat that average, at least beat the average of just Koreans that are very conservative and, you know, but this is sex among the spouses, all right? And so we have homework. And so every time we gather, the married couples, all right, so how was it? How'd you you do the last two months? And every couple has to answer, you know, we were plus. Plus means you did it at least five times a month. Plus plus means... You did double that. I can tell you right now, there are some pastors on staff with our church who are plus plus every time we meet. <laughs> Man, they are committed. I don't know how they do it. All right, I'll admit right now, Aaron and I, we struggle, okay? <laughs> we struggle with even just plus sometimes. But let me tell you, having good sex is an indicator of a healthy marriage. When sex starts to go out the window, you know you got some other problems in other areas. Sex is a good indicator. And if you want more sex, you've got to be healthier in other areas to have good sex. So it's a holistic thing. I've got to land the plane. I'm going to land it here. God designed sex. Sex is beautiful. God gives certain prohibitions. Honor those prohibitions. Obey those prohibitions. Heed the warnings you find in the book of Proverbs. Stay away from the adulteress. Her highway is a highway to death. But... And all these things, there are temporary ways to stay pure. But the ultimate way that I want you to land that as you grow as a Christian is seek purity because you want oneness with God. If that is your highest aim, you're going to find a lot of victory in the area of purity. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. You want to see God more and more in your life? You want greater oneness, intimacy with him? Then let that be your driving ambition for pursuing purity. Amen? I just want to say one thing to people in the church. I think one of the things we struggle with is a religious spirit regarding to sexual sin. Uh, I want to ask you, those who are in the church, who actually have a quite a good sexual history. You're quite pure in your sexual history. And you're actually quite proud of that. Okay, if that's you, and this is a temptation I face as well. Watch out that you do not condemn harshly or look down on those who have a sexual history. Don't treat them more harshly than someone else with another set of sins. You know, the, the Pharisees, 
This is exactly what they did. They really looked down on prostitutes. And they looked down on anyone who was guilty of sexual sin. And they saw them as worthless, undignified. But if you look at the way Jesus interacted with them, he took a whole different approach. He was quite, quite kind and compassionate, and he always sought to restore their dignity. He didn't try to expose them. He didn't try to put a scarlet letter around their neck and be like, unclean, unclean. Y'all never read that book, Scarlet Letter? I'm getting some blank stares. Puritan community, woman commits adultery. Back then, the Puritans were very, very, uh, very committed to holiness as they interpreted what holiness is. And so in order to kind of punish her and have her pur- be purged of her sins and whatnot, she had to wear a scarlet letter on her chest with a big A, meaning adulterer. And that whole book is written to show that, you know, it's not the way of Jesus approached people who are guilty of sexual sin. You know, sexual sin, a lot of times, it, it, it's a, it's, there's a healing that needs to happen in the heart. And I think that's why Jesus is particularly compassionate toward a lot of people who do have sexual history. Because he knows that the real answer is his love and his presence that's going to actually get to the root of their sin problem. And we need to do the same for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ or even those who are just coming to the Lord. We need to be gracious and compassionate as Jesus was. Don't fall into that Pharisaic spirit. And if you are guilty of sexual sin yourself, don't do that to yourself. You know, some people, they commit sexual sin and they're like, I'm so bad. I can't believe I did that. I was doing so good. Oh, man. They just fall into despair. And then they fall into more sexual sin. Because they're working from a place of despair. The gospel does not give you despair when you come to the cross. Bring your despair to the foot of the cross and leave it there. Receive the grace. Stop trying to earn your own salvation. Earn your own purity. Stop working toward that and receive the grace of Christ. He removes your despair and says... Behold, my death gives you hope for a resurrection. My death paid it all. Just receive it with thanksgiving. And in light of my death and resurrection, go and sin no more. So my, my key text, I didn't even get to read my key text, but I'm just going to end it here. Right? Uh, if you want to read the key text, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. I'm just going to read a little excerpt. It pretty much says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sec- sins against his own body. Do, not, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Why should I honor God? By having a better sleep schedule, eating right, keeping myself sexually pure. This is the reason you were bought at a price. God didn't just save your soul and your heart. He saved your whole being, including your physical body. And one day he's going to come in glory. And he's going to give you new resurrected bodies on which you're going to rule and reign with him. So honor God with your body. You are not your own. Let us pray. Amen. You know, I, I've been ministering here at New Philly for six years now. Back from, all the way from back 2008. Ministering before then, too, as a lay leader. And uh, I've heard many people's stories over the years. 
And I'll, I'll share some sad, sad general statistics that I've observed. Oftentimes, half to two-thirds of women that come into the church, they've been sexually abused when they were younger or even as an adult. And over two-thirds of Christian men in the church today, they're all, they're all sexually active in some form or another. The culture of pornography only uh, heightens this problem of men objectifying women, idolizing sex in an unhealthy way, not connected with any reality. When you look at pornography and you allow pornography to shape your views of sex rather than God and scripture, when you get married, you're in for a huge disillusionment. Because by the way, the people who are in those films, they're acting. And if they stopped acting, they will show you that the sex that they're having is does not give them pleasure. Not in the way God intended. They don't feel accepted and loved. But those films will never portray that. And you that's why as Christians, we got to be discerning and allow the word of God to shape our views of sex. For so many men, they idolize sex because of pornography. And they idolize a view of sex that no woman in the world can live up to. It's unfair to your future spouse. It's also unfair to you. And it also creates a culture of violence against women. Where even children are vulnerable to sexual predators. Because pornography, it just numbs you to relationships and love. The very spirit by why God gives commands of sexual prohibition. At the root of a lot of the sexual immorality in our culture is an idol. And we need to cast down that idol. So although the church, you know, every week we don't have testimonies of people coming up here and sharing about their sexual sin. I'm telling you here today that if you're sexually sinning, you're actually part of the majority and you're not alone. You don't have to feel like the woman with the scarlet letter. And if you open up to mature leaders here at our church and to our pastors, they're not going to judge you. They're not going to call you dirty. They're going to give you the gospel. And that's what good Christian leaders should do. Is to help bring healing, wholeness, or forgiveness. That's what Jesus does. If we can't go to the church for this kind of forgiveness and healing, where can the young people go? They're not going to find it at the club. They're not going to find it on some social media Facebook group. It's got to be in the church. That's why it's so important that we as church leaders and members, we create a culture where people can feel free to be vulnerable and confess their sins so that they can be healed. And I'm here to tell you today that New Philly is a church like that. I'm confident. You might find a few, fool, few foolish people among our people, but for the vast majority of our leaders, you open up and they are not going to condemn you. They are going to bring grace. They may even help you get to the heart of the issue and bring healing. So I'll stand to our feet. And as we sing this worship song, I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to move in this place. I just feel like he's not done yet.